0: Been looking forward to opening up this passage with you. It's, uh, it's rich, it's deep. Uh, if we haven't met before, uh, my name's Adam. I'm one of the elders that serves here at Grace Church. And just so you have some background, we've uh, been working through a series in Romans, starting in chapter one, verse one, just working through the entire letter. We're in chapter six today. And our, our work, our mission in going through the letter is to recenter ourselves on the gospel. That's what we wanna do. And this passage is just loaded with all sorts of truth that Paul gives us. So last week in chapter five, that was the uh, the passage that we got a quick review of there for a moment. Uh, Justin taught us from that passage uh, about this comparison, where original sin, what Adam fell, his rebellion in the garden a long time ago, introduced death. And chapter five says that death entered the world through one man, and therefore all died. And It didn't take long, right? If you remember, Cain murders Abel, Lamech murders many, right? There's destruction, there's death, and that's the reality of of everything that's been the human existence since then. And then Paul says, but Christ, on the other hand, had a different work. And his grace, his work on the cross is not like the trespass. And so given all of the trespasses and all of the sin, a single act of grace overcomes it all. And for those of us that are in Christ, there's a shift that takes place where Adam is no longer our head, but Christ is. That truth raised an objection for a lot of folks. And so Paul is addressing that objection here. so if if grace trumps sin, and one act of grace in Christ trumps thousands of years, millions of people's worth of sin, well then shouldn't I just keep sinning more? If that's the effect, if I sin and then grace overwhelms, ought I not sin more so that grace will grow? And if that's true, well then isn't Christianity just a sham? Isn't grace just a license to do all sorts of wickedness? That's the question. That's that's what Paul is addressing now, and the answer is no, clearly. He says that. That part's pretty obvious to most of us, if, if you've been a believer, if you're familiar with church life, but the why. The why? behind the no. It's deep and it's rich and it's good. It's not as obvious. And so that's, that's what I want to look at with you today is the why, because it goes to the very core of what it means to be a Christian, the very core of what Christ did on the cross. And so please think with me through this passage, because if you are a believer in Christ, it, it governs everything in your life and your relationship to the Lord. The way you relate to him, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, head to toe. It governs everything. It's what Paul calls walking in the new life. That's the phrase that he uses at the end of verse 4 that we just read. Uh, We're going to move back and forth in the passage from 1 to 14, right? But Paul sort of builds out and explains in more detail what was summarized in verses 1 through 4. And so if you come through this sermon, um, if you track with Paul's logic, and Lord willing, the Spirit moves and commends his word to us, uh, you'll come away with a skill, hopefully a sharper skill on fighting sin, and what it means to live in the new life. So we're gonna look at it in three parts, okay? We're gonna start with the work of Christ on the cross, our union with Christ as a believer, And then the effect that those both have on our life, right? What we do day to day. What's the effect of Christ's work on the cross? What's the effect of our union with him? And then how does that map out and flesh out and change the way that we live? Okay, so we'll start with the work of Christ. Now to to set that table, you need to start with an awareness. I need to start with an awareness of the world into which Christ was born as an infant. As you know, in the Christmas story, he was born to very humble parents, very humble place. Uh, We don't know a whole lot about his childhood, but there's nothing in Scripture that suggests he was exempt from, say, childhood sickness or any of the challenges that might come with growing up in that part of the world at that time. Uh, Many people think, and this is speculation, but many people think that his dad died somewhere along the way before he began his public ministry. The reason for that, if you recall, when he's actually in the act of crucifixion, he looks to his mom and he looks to John and he, and he commits his mom into John's care. And that wouldn't have been necessary. At least it wouldn't have been obvious if she was still married. So good chance that he lost his dad and that hurts. That's painful. He knew the reality of sin and death and pain. Uh, scripture tells us that he comforted parents who had lost their child, right, in that moment, that's real grief, before he healed and raised a little girl. Uh, He comforted and wept Mary and Martha, you'll recall, when Lazarus died. So Christ was well acquainted with our human pain, our human death. He wasn't in any way insulated from it, right? He knew the reality. So if you sort of put this in the big picture, what started, with the fall back in Genesis, work was cursed, relationships are broken, right? People are at each other's throats, and ultimately death is the consequence of sin, right? And that's what the Lord told Adam, right? If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Playing it out, death ultimately leads, I'm sorry, sin ultimately leads to both physical and spiritual death. And it is and was death was superior. It had dominion. There was no one who had a pass or a trump card on death. That's the world into which Christ was born. And so when Paul says in chapter five, that death entered the world through one man and therefore all sinned. And he says in chapter six, the wages of sin is death. He's agreeing with the the Lord who said back in Genesis two, if you sin, you will die. That's the landscape. That's the landscape. So now, fast forward to the point of Christ's crucifixion, and I'm going to go straight to verse 7. So if you want to follow along, this is chapter 6, verse 7. And Paul gives a rule of thumb. This is sort of a maxim, okay? One short verse. He says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. One who's died has been set free from sin. And so the the very basic point here is that uh, when death comes... A debt's been collected. There's not a lot of good news in this very narrow statement. It's just the reality. When death comes, a debt's been paid. You've been set free in that sense. Death severs the hold that sin has on that individual because of the payment. Now, verse 9, Paul starts talking about resurrection. We know that Christ being raised from the dead... But before we blow by the concept of resurrection, we need to stop. We need to think just a moment. If the reality of human existence is governed by death and Christ died, Christ is dying because sin leads to death. Now, let me be quick to add, Christ didn't die for his own sin. He was sinless. The scripture is clear. But Christ did not flout the reality of death. Right? He died On behalf of us but he died under the dominion of death that goes back all
1: the way to the garden
0: he submitted to it right with this concept of death being dominant now this last week we all celebrated easter with the truth and the hope that we have in resurrection that christ as we know was raised on the third day But here's the point, if we kind of think through that sequentially, Christ submitted to death, he said, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down, right? He gave up his own life voluntarily, but he submitted to the reality of death that we all are under. Plumbed it to the uttermost, went to the very dregs of whatever death involves,
1: and then he transcended it.
0: his resources went further, go further, than the reality of death. So when Paul says in verse 9, Christ will never die again, it's because of that reality, right? He submitted to death. A debt's been collected. It's been defanged. It's been paid in full. Right? It's now impotent. And so he inverted the relationship. So the reality had been that life for every one of us ends in death. And that was true of Christ. His life Came to death, and then you had life again. Right? And so, what had been true—that life ends in death—gets flipped. His death, well, it ended in life. And do you see that flip? You see that inversion? That's the logic of verse nine. When Paul says here, we know Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Mastery shifted right? Dominion, power, clout, shifted. There was a reckoning. And so through his work on the cross, Christ submitting to the same reality of death that we're all beholden to, he achieves mastery. Paul builds on that point in verse 10, because he says his death was once for all. The singular event, one time. Right, the finality the completion, right? It's a reckoning. It's a reckoning. It's a complete shift. It's not subject to being reversed. But Christ lives, present tense, ongoing, perpetual. right? Death has a terminus. It has an end point in Christ. But his life does not. Right? Paul says that Christ lives to God perpetually. That's the sort of the related effect of what Christ accomplished On the cross, as he inverts and satisfies the claim of death, becomes its master. Death has an end point. Life in Christ becomes eternal and perpetual through his exaltation and through his work. Now, before I move on, go to verse 4. Second part of that verse, I'm going to focus on one key phrase here. Paul tells us that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Christ was raised... Yep. From the dead. Got it. How? By the glory of the Father. So if you just read those words plainly and literally, uh, the the concept of glory, we talked about it before, it's, it's God's splendor. It's his majesty. It's on display for people to see and to learn and to behold something of God's character. That's the nature of God's glory is revelation, right? He's disclosing himself and we behold it and we see who he is. So Paul's telling us here, right, most significant act in all of human history, God decides to reveal himself, He says, behold my glory, and the effect, the dead man rises. That's wild, right? That's like God pulling back the curtain, right? We get blinding light, and the effect, the outcome is, is resurrection. Now, Paul's got sort of um, several different perspectives on the mechanics of resurrection. And we're not going to go to the verses, but there's one in chapter 1. There's also another one in chapter 8, where he says that the Holy Spirit is the agent or the means by which resurrection occurred for Christ. So on the one hand, you have God the Father saying, I'm going to glorify myself in resurrection. And on the other, he says, and it's going to happen through the Spirit. He's the agent of this quickening right? Of of this life occurring again. And so in the resurrection, you have the son laying down his life voluntarily. The reality that God established in Genesis two, that death is going to be the result of sin. That's true. It's not flouted. Christ fulfills it, lays his life down. You know, the story doesn't end there, right? God, the father says, guess what? I'm going to glorify myself. You're going to see something of my character in this moment. And the Spirit steps in to bring life. It's the channel. He's the agent through which resurrection occurs. And so you have all three persons of the Trinity active in resurrection.
1: All right, That's pretty cool stuff. Makes me want to stop, right? Sing some
0: more. But... Nonetheless, we've got to keep going. So that's the first point. Christ's work on the cross satisfied the penalty for death, made him master over death. He now is calling the shots, as it were. And so then what a tee up to say, okay, well, what does it mean when somebody becomes united to that individual? When you and I come in faith and are united to Christ, right? Let's look at our union. But don't forget... Okay, now as we shift to the second point, don't forget the, the thrust of what Paul is answering here. Why don't we just continue sending? Is this just a loophole, right? Is grace just a loophole for sin? No, no, absolutely not. And so he begins to give a little more detail here. In verse two, he says no, and he, he gives a question in response to what he's, uh, the question that's been posed to him. He said, well, how is it possible to live in sin for those who have died to sin? Right, that's his question. And so what does that mean? How have we, if you are a believer in Christ, how is it that we have died to sin? Now, the short answer is baptism. Uh, but the term baptism needs to be clearly understood. It is not just getting wet. Right? We don't just immerse people or some churches sprinkle. It's not just water. Right? That's not the point in order to defeat sin. So let me build this out a little bit. Uh, The word itself, baptize, three sort of related concepts. One is cleansing, right? The next is immersion. And that's why we go underwater because that's what the word means. And the third is overwhelm, overwhelm. And so Paul's using this term, baptize, to describe the wholeness of what it means for somebody to come to Christ. Right? So you hear the message and you feel the conviction of the Spirit and you begin to realize, I am sinful and broken and I've got a problem. I need help. And the Spirit draws and you see the beauty of Christ and His grace. He unites us by grace through faith to Himself. We right? We repent. We walk in newness of life, the scriptures say, we look different. And our very first act of obedience is baptism. And so, if you get into you know, some of the debates that we like to have, well, what happens if somebody sort of gets saved and they're in the car and they don't make the church and they can't get wet? And like, like that's not what Paul's conception is, is that this is all part and parcel of one event. Okay? So, when he uses the word baptized, if somebody said, well, yeah, but there are these Christians that aren't baptized, like, Why? You said they're Christians. Right? That's the idea, right? Covers everything. It's the whole initiation, it's the whole conversion when somebody comes to Christ. And the reason we know that is that he uses the phrase, don't you know that you've been baptized into Christ? So that's more than water. And we've been baptized, he says, into his death. Again, more than water. So there's something very significant, something holistic about our union with Christ that he is explaining here. So it's worth saying here, just as a very quick sidebar, this is why the Roman Catholic view on baptism is out of step with scripture, why it's incorrect. Now, to to be fair, Roman Catholics will acknowledge and say, yeah, you absolutely need faith to please God to be saved. But they will also say that the act of of baptism, the actual act, We get somebody, we put them underwater. They'll use the term, it infuses grace into the individual. And so it's both your faith and it is the act, the infusing of grace, that makes someone right with God. It's just wrong. The thrust of this passage is not human effort to activate grace like a lever. The thrust of the passage is the Father reconciling, uniting people to Christ. It's his work and his alone. Right? That's why the, the clarity around baptism is essential, because it muddies the water, so to speak, in some places, some accounts of the gospel. So let's be clear on that. It's his act and his work, and it's not ours. But what an event it is. This is where I love the term immerse and overwhelm. I have just this picture in my mind. I'm not, this is not definitional. Uh, somebody standing on a shore an incoming tidal wave, you're, you're going to get immersed. You're going to get overwhelmed. You're going to get caught up in something, uh, better yet, someone
1: much more powerful. So when Paul says believers
0: are baptized into Christ, this is... These are not empty words, right? He's looking for human words to articulate something supernatural, right? As we become reconciled and united to Christ. When that happens, right? When the believer comes to Christ, we put our trust, our faith in him, then he uses the word in verse five that we're united. That's his word. And if you do the, the word study, if you research this particular term, the, the context, the the root of this word is biology and so it's the the idea that there's a, perhaps a broken bone. so you know if you have your bone broken, you set it and then eventually the bone grows back together and there's something called a bone cuff that goes around that wound and it becomes a little bit stronger uh, so if, if you're in the medical field or you've ever seen x-rays you you know what I'm talking about guys, you want to put this there it is right there so. There are still legitimate uses for the internet. Not many. There's at least one, maybe two. Uh, but do you see the difference between the break and then the, un- the united relationship of that place where there used to be a break? And it's bigger, right? That that Which is kind of cool, right? Just as a sidebar. That your bones grow back bigger and stronger when they're broken. That's random. Sidebar. But... That's what Paul is talking about here. There there is something biological where we become fused, united, wrapped up, and stronger permanently to Christ. Now, if you notice the wording here in verse 5, Paul says that we're united with him in a death that is like his and a resurrection that is like his. And he's careful in his word choice. You and I did not participate in the actual literal crucifixion 2,000 years ago. We weren't there. But our union, right, this fusing together involves a participation of some sort in that death and in the resurrection. Christ literally suffered death and judgment alone. We didn't. He satisfied the claim and the penalty of sin and it has no remaining power over him. So in the same way, when you participate in Christ through faith, when you're united with him, justice has already been served. And so as a follow on, right, as you're tapping into this justice that's been affected, you're already, as a judicial matter, good, clear. we're unbreakably sealed. One of the other pictures, if you think about skin growing back on a wound, it's the same, same concept. There is something that has no conception of ever being separated again. The way that I I've thought about this a little bit, and if it doesn't help, tune it out, right? We'll be done in about 30 seconds with this illustration. Uh, but think about the difference between a human brain, pictures in a textbook, maybe in high school, and a human mind. So I, I remember in high school pictures, you know, lobes and neural pathways and hemispheres and that, that's kind of it, right? That's the brain, I remember that. The mind, well that, that's where things like love and reason and will and all sorts of things are going on. We can pinpoint, pinpoint where the brain is. The mind, it's kind of there can't pinpoint it. It's far more complex than I can articulate, but I know it's there. That's what Paul is getting across. Christ did something profound and beyond us on the cross and in the resurrection. But in some sense that we can pinpoint at the act of conversion, the time of conversion, you become united to him. And so what's true of him and his work on the cross becomes true of you, becomes true of me. So the mind and the brain, they're not identical, but you can't have one without the other.
1: 2,000 years
0: after the crucifixion, there are many of us in this room, probably not all, have been united to Christ. And so God looks at us as participants in his death and in his resurrection. Now, here's another very cool thing. Try and wrap your mind around the timeline that's involved here. We weren't there when crucifixion and resurrection happened. But Paul says that you're baptized into Christ and into his death, past tense, much later. And so the same Savior who transcends death is now its master, transcends time to unite you and me to himself. Right? Again, just giving some indication of the strength of his work. Right? That's why I like the tidal wave image right? where we're talking about power and strength that's big. So what does it mean to be united to Christ? It means that sin and death do not have mastery over us anymore because they don't have mastery over Christ. And just like the Holy Spirit conveyed resurrection power to Christ, his neural pathways began to fire. Right, Oxygen, blood began to flow because the Spirit made it so in his broken body. That same Spirit mediates the same type of power to you and me now, those of us who are in Christ. It's the same kind of power. It gives us an ability to overcome and to fight sin and to be successful in it, the same way that it made Christ successful over death. We do have the ability now. doesn't mean we're always successful at it, for sure, but you do have an ability as a disciple now to push back and to fight sin. And I say we have some of that power now. There's more coming. There's going to be a real resurrection. Right? Several of the people that we've lost in this church over the years, those saints, we're going to see them again. Family members. uh, Folks that have given their lives for this work. Same power, sort of going around as a circuit, raising dead people. And so the takeaway here is that our union in verse 5, it is a participation. That's the word I want you to hold on to in Christ What's true of him in death and resurrection becomes true of us when we're united to him through faith. It's the same concept in chapter 5 that we studied last week. We used to be united to Adam, hopeless, wrecked, subject to death. Now united to Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. That's the effect of what it means to be united, permanently fused, so what then should it look like when we know what Christ accomplished on the cross? What he did for us at the point we became united to him? What should it look like in our lives? Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that his work, it is the, it's the foundation. His atoning work is the foundation for everything that we do. I want to be very clear on that. Right? Our salvation is his work. His spirit in us motivates us to service. But his work, that's the foundation for what our life is to look like now. Uh, Bearing that in mind, Paul gives very clear, very direct instruction to us. Uh, If you look at verse 11, he tells him, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so Paul is focused on the will in this passage. When he says you need to consider yourselves or count yourselves or think of yourselves as dead to sin, it's not um, the power of positive thinking. What Paul wants you to understand is it's true. It's happened. It's something that Christ has done. Therefore, orient your thinking, come in line, be congruent with the truth of who you are in Christ. Does that make sense? There's something here in God's wisdom that I've wondered on, and I'm not the first. You guys have probably had these thoughts too. Um, Why, God? I I don't know. But God has seen fit to make us more Christ-like through the act of our will under the influence of His Spirit. For whatever time we have on earth, we're involved, and we have a role, and we have a responsibility, a role to play in our sanctification. Again, he does the work in salvation. But once that power becomes part of your reality, it's on you and it's on me to bring myself into submission to the Lord. So when he says, consider yourselves dead to sin, he means it. So when the temptations come, online, relationships, money, whatever the temptations are, that's when the spotlight, by God's design, shines on you and me. Consider yourself dead to sin. Right? We're under orders, as it were. Think of Paul, right? He expressed the same thought to the Corinthian church, another letter, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. You remember his life before grace? But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There's his responsibility. You remember the last part of this verse though? But it wasn't it wasn't I. It was the grace of God working in me. Say, well, Paul, which is it? Like, is it on me to live and to obey? Yep. Well, are you responsible? Yeah, absolutely. Well, did you do it? Nope, that was the Spirit. That was grace. How does it work? I I don't know.
1: But how do dead men walk? I don't know. Still true. Still happens.
0: So think about that on a practical level level, right? Non-believer has no desire at all, no innate, no spirit-given desire to pursue Christ-like holiness. Just not there, it's not present. And so a corpse would be more likely to walk than a non-believer to pursue Christ. But when the Spirit takes up residence in us, this is, it's just fun, right? It's, it's just good. He begins to, to rewire affections. And he changes the way that you think. And you become aware of sin. You're like, you know what? This is not a good idea anymore. How many of you guys have felt that? Like, you know the experience? Like, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? yeah. We develop this desire to honor Christ and to submit to him and to become like him. Uh, We still sin, and that that is so frustrating. But, right, here's the glimmer. The frustration itself is evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Because, again, apart from Christ, you don't have the inclination or the power to live like Christ, to draw near to him. So take some measure of encouragement in your frustration. In verses 12 and 13, Paul gives us sort of two aspects on this teaching of what it means to walk in a new life, to yield yourself to Christ. Negatively, he prohibits us. He says, do not offer any part of yourself as an instrument of unrighteousness. And then positively, he says, offer yourself to the Lord for his use. Now, the details, again, they matter here. He he uses some strange words. He talks about offering members of yourself to unrighteousness or parts of yourself. And so the idea here is uh, talents, skills, gifting, money, time, resources, just the way that we sort of compartmentalize things, the way that we think about different aspects of who we are and what we do. But don't give any of it to sin physical, spiritual, emotional, Don't content yourself with an act of service, a donation, two hours once a month, and then you kind of hold back
1: the rest. Anybody guilty of that one? I am. I am.
0: Don't offer any part of yourself to unrighteousness. But then he says, offer yourselves, and he uses the word yourselves holistically. Everything, every skill, every inclination, every resource, everything that you are, offered to the Lord. Again, this is is in the mind. This is where this starts, in the will, in the mind, because of our union. We're saying, all right, Lord, I, I have so much money. I have so much time. I have so many relationships. Here they are. They're on the table.
1: Right. We are called to be vulnerable before Christ with everything that we have.
0: Paul lived that way, and he told him, you're going to see how much you need to suffer for my name, when he picked Paul up and flipped him around and said, go be my messenger to the Gentiles. Christ himself said, I live to do the Father's will. You Remember the prayer in Gethsemane, not my will, Lord, your will be done. But what's much more natural is to sit back and to parcel out. Well, I'm going to give this part this time, but i got a lot of me time left. A lot of me time. All of it. All of it. Laid sort of naked, as it were, before the Lord. Does that feel a little bit scary? A little bit right, vulnerable, out of control? But just remember who you're offering it to, right, and what he's done for you what he's accomplished and who he is, and the character of the Father to accomplish what he did. So you can trust the one to whom you offer all of yourself. One commentator put it this way, believers must consciously choose. It doesn't happen passively. Consciously choose to place themselves at the disposal, an interesting word, of their master, lord, and king. Paul knows that he's calling us to swim upstream here. You can hear it in his words. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So this is the tension, right? We're united to Christ. We have the power and the ability to overcome sin. He says, but don't let it overcome you, right? So there is a tension. There is a current that is coming against us. And that's the reality of where we are right now. He says, don't let that happen. It is on you, it is on me to appropriate the power through the Holy Spirit to push back on that, right? To make use of the spiritual steel by which we are united to Christ, right? To put it to work. And you actually do have the ability to flee sin and to overcome it. No guarantee of perfection, but a call and an ability to overcome it. And at the same time, right, we have that, we have that call, we have that mandate, but there, there is just an amazing incentive, right? In his grace and in his mercy, we come to love the Lord more. I think of Lazarus. Lazarus and his sisters were friends with Christ before Lazarus died. Lazarus probably liked Jesus. What do you think he thought of Jesus after he was resurrected? He probably loved him a little bit more. He probably came to understand his power a little bit more. Remember the Gadarene demoniac after he healed him, wanted to be with him? Well, you're now my disciple. Go and bear witness in my name. Right? When you come to Christ and you are united with him, you kind of want to be near him. It becomes sort of scary fun to offer yourself to him. Right? few last thoughts on application. One final encouragement. Uh, if you're a believer in Christ, have you asked yourself, is everything I have on the table, right? Or am I compartmentalizing? How much me time do I have left? Right? it's a daily dying. Christ said, whoever come after me would deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. It's a daily dying to self. Paul is calling us to jump in head first. One other thing I read here said, we saints must not close our mouths to the fountain of sanctification. But we got to continue to drink from it, right? So the fountain's coming, but you got to swallow, right? There's just kind of this cool union of how it works together. Practically speaking, uh, Sandra touched on this in the announcements. There are a lot of needs in the church right now. There's a lot of them. God, in his grace and in his wisdom, is bringing people together to worship and to grow, to conform to the image of Christ at every level. Infants, toddlers, children, youth, young adults, not so young adults. (laughs) I'm not asking you to add busy work to your calendar. Grace Church exists to make disciples for Christ by his grace, or his glory. If you don't want to be part of that, what is it that you want to be part of? Right? Offer yourself. Get involved in that work. Encouraging and being encouraged as we press in to Christ. Uh, let me give a warning here. If you think of yourself as a Christian, right, if you use that word, Uh, But you have no interest at all. Serving Christ, pursuing Christ, thinking about Christ, just sort of comfortable, floating, sort of vaguely aware. There's probably a little bit of sin in my life, not too much. But comfortable with it, not bothered, not losing sleep. Uh, If that's true of you,
1: that's dangerous ground to be on.
0: Right? If you have no desire to go deeper, that is out of step with the reality that Paul is preaching here to say you're united as a believer. There's enormous power that comes to you as a result of that union. Live your life in his service and be fulfilled. Give everything to it. If that's got zero appeal to you, that's dangerous. I'm not judging your heart. right? Scripture says we look on the out, outward appearances, but the Lord judges the heart. But you know, right? that deadness of spirit ought to be a red flag. It is a red flag. Right? So we're going to sing in a few minutes. There'll be some elders at the back. If you need encouragement fighting sin as a believer, or if that last comment may have offended and you want to talk, um, you should talk to somebody. Right? The stakes are pretty high. If you're a believer who is fighting and is just bone tired of losing, right? Habitual sin is a reality, right? And there are places for professional counseling. Definitely places for community, right? Where we encourage one another. If you're bone tired of the struggle, uh, come talk to one of us in the back. We can talk a little bit more on how to develop an affection for Christ and what that looks like. So that your tank begins to fill. All right, but more than that, I have some good news. right? Scripture gives us great news. Uh,
1: one day that struggle is going to end.
0: All right, here we are today. Uh, we are not under sin's dominion by virtue of this union. But we're still under its influence. I wouldn't feel it. But one day the very presence of sin itself is...
1: No more. None of us have been to a place like that. All right, it's hard to think about,
0: but let me read to you what is hopefully a familiar passage. I hope it uh, causes your chest to swell, like it does mine. It helps with allergies. Um, <laughs> then I saw a new heaven. The new earth. Right, the first heaven, the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. (laughs) He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death. Mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things passed
1: away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Write it down. These words are trustworthy and they're true.
0: And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my children. What a promise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so much bigger, bolder, more beautiful than we are. And we take rest, and we give you glory, and we enjoy the confession and the singing of your goodness. Lord, we acknowledge and we thank you, for the union that you've given those of us who you've made your own, who you've called to put your faith or our faith in you. Lord, we hear the call to obedience and to self-denial, to submission to your spirit. And so by the strength that you give us in your spirit and your grace, we say, yes, Lord, I submit, I hear it. Grant me the strength to obey. And Lord is good for us and we need it, but it's, more about your glory than anything else. And so as we stumble and as we fail and as we get back up and we get carried along by your grace, God, would you make all of the glory for yourself out of that and fashion us to look more like your son. It is in his strong name that we pray and that we sing, amen. Amen.